Craft Beer Radio presents Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Private Tasting Salon Number 1, a very rare beer tasting, featuring John Dannerbeck of Anchor Brewing. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Savor. It's nice to get in a little bit early. My name is Paul Gatza. I'm director of the Brewers Association. We're a trade group based in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, we produce this event uh, for, our, for the general public and for the members of the Brewers Association to get a chance to really you know, go for a high-end craft beer and food experience, do something a little different that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. Um, our first uh, talk today is a deconstruction of uh, OBA, Our Barrel Ale, from uh, Anchor Brewing Company. Uh, we have John Dannerbeck with us to uh, give this uh, private tasting, um, and this should be a lot of fun. Um, John, uh, these are his stomping grounds to some degree. He went to George Washington University, where he studied at the Brickskeller, I believe was your classroom or something? I have a major. I have a graduate degree from the Brickskeller. <laughs> All right. Uh, John is uh, um, currently the sales and marketing director for Anchor Brewing Company, and he's soon to be the president of the Anchor Brewing and Distilling Company, as uh, they've, uh, Fritz is uh, moving on into a more retirement uh, phase, and uh, John's taken over. Um, so uh, with, um, uh, without further ado, I give you John Dannerbeck from Anchor Brewing Company. So we are recording these, so it might be nice to uh, get a good microphone. They waited until that point to tell me that they were going to record it, and I was going on some radio. So that's not nervous-making at all. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that very much. I had no idea there was anything involved like that. Um, this is an interesting concept. I've never done anything like this. It's a great idea, I guess. Uh, rather Victorian to have a salon, but to uh, sit around and talk about beer and whiskey and aging and barrels and stuff like that's fun. I think the idea is, I promise, I'll keep it a little shorter and sweeter, um, literally. We'll get out of here, and I'll let you get a head start on the crowd. I think the plan was that they were going to open the main doors to the public at 7.30, but Paul just told me they were thinking, actually, they would open it up a little earlier, maybe 7 or 7.10, because there was no reason to keep everybody standing out in the heat. So I think you know we'll try to wrap up real early and let you get down on the floor before it gets real crowded down there. I think that's okay, isn't it, Paul? Uh, yeah. It, Okay, well, I'll head down, and you can come try some of, some of the other beers we've got down there. You can follow me down there, because we've got a new beer. Actually, tonight, um, we're coming out with a new beer in August we call Humming Ale. And it was a one-off, originally supposed to be a one-off brew that we brewed last year, last August, to celebrate what was the 30th anniversary of our current brew house. And Fritz had had a long tradition of brewing interesting beers to celebrate the anniversary of our new brewery and our new brew house. The 10-year anniversary was the uh, wheat beer that we did, our summer wheat beer. It was the first uh, wheat beer made in the United States in modern times back in 1984. And then the, I think it was the 15th anniversary of the brew house, he did a project called Ninkasi, and that was a recreation of the oldest known beer recipe, which is a Sumerian beer recipe, from a cuneiform clay tablet found in the Euphrates River Valley, which was nearly 6,000 years old. And so that was a fun project. So 
It had been a few years since we'd done an anniversary beer. We did the Humming Ale, and it was a fun beer, and it was very successful. We only did one. It was popular enough that we decided that we're going to make it a permanent uh, seasonal offering to our beer lineup, and we're pouring it downstairs tonight. Hopefully you'll come by and try it. But tonight I I thought it might be interesting. I know there's a lot of barrel-aged beers and a lot of barrel-aged beer talk going on tonight. And so I thought just to try to do something a little bit different, what we do is deconstruct what we did with our barrel-aged beer. This is a bottle of the barrel-aged beer. Um, It was a project that we did about a year and a half ago. And um, we have a, a small brewery in San Francisco. We also have a small distillery. We have uh, copper pot stills where we make rye whiskey and gin. And the rye whiskey project started 15 years ago. We've been making um, 100% malted rye whiskey for 15 years now. And it's still a very, very tiny project. But every time we bottle the whiskey, we empty these barrels and um, have done nothing with the barrels. And um, the barrels have just been sitting empty without being used once they've been once used. And so we finally convinced Fritz that maybe it would be fun to try aging some of our own beers in our own barrels. And that's what we did. But we hadn't done it before, and we weren't interested in trying to recreate what anybody else had done. And we thought we were in a unique position because it was our own beer and our own whiskey barrels. The barrels are very special. They're handmade specifically for us um, in a specific style that we like to use for our rye whiskey. So when Fritz Green lighted it, said, go ahead, you guys, you know, do something, just don't do something horrible. We weren't sure what to do, so we picked four of our beers. And um, we chose not to use our steam beer. We thought that was kind of sacrosanct, and we didn't want to touch it. We didn't want a barrel-aged anchor steam or anything like that. So we took our Liberty Ale, our Foghorn, our Bach, and our Porter, and we aged them in six barrels. It was a very tiny project. We, they spent six months in um, used charred oak barrels, and after six months, we'd been, we t- tasted the beer after about three months, and it hadn't done anything very interesting at all, and we were ready to just throw it out and pack it in. We were extremely disappointed, but then we realized three months, that doesn't really mean anything. So we came back another three months later, after six months in the barrel, and we tried the beers, and voila, it was just an amazing metamorphosis that had taken place by the, the beers in the barrels. So we tried each one individually, and we loved each one individually, but we only basically had about a barrel, barrel and a half each of them. There was nothing we could really do with it. So then we thought, well, let's just try a composite, blend all of the four beers together and see how that tasted. And we did, and the composite was actually better than the individual beers. But even then, it was only six whiskey barrels um, total of beer, and so we were really limited. We couldn't run it into our keg racking line. It was too small of an amount. We could not run it through our bottling line, and it was too small of an amount. And then somebody remembered that we had an old uh, uh, Magnum hand bottler from years and years ago. Some of you may know that we do a Christmas ale in these big Magnums. We do them now on our bottling line because we do enough of them, but when Fritz first started doing it, the production of them was so small, we we did it on a little hand bottler. So we dragged it out of storage, um, hadn't been used in something like... 15, 18 years. Half the parts were rusted out. We had to replace them, order them. They didn't actually make the parts anymore, so we had to kind of build some of the parts. Finally, three months after we decided to use it, we got the machine running and we were able to bottle this. Literally the night before the kickoff of the inaugural San Francisco Beer Week, 
where we released it for the kickoff party for Beer Week, and then a week later we sold the Magnums at the brewery, and only at the brewery. And we had a line out the door and sold out within two hours that morning. And uh, we've been anxious to do it again. This was uh, February year, a little over a year ago that we released it. And um, we've been very anxious to do it again, but we haven't had any whiskey bottlings where the barrels had come available until just about two months ago. And so I was very excited. We were going to have the empty barrels. We were going to fill them up again. And um, Fritz grabbed the barrels, and he's using them for another experiment that we're doing. And I was disappointed because it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my experiment. I really wanted to do the barrel ale again, but his experiment's going to be pretty interesting. And maybe it'll see the light of day. Maybe it won't. But uh, in any case, what I thought we'd do is we start off with our Liberty Ale, which is one of the beers that went into the... um, Barrel Ale. The Liberty Ale, if you don't know, was the first dry hop pale ale made in the United States. It was, a, again, a one-off brew, uh, originally intended as a one-off brew that Fritz made in 1975 uh, in an attempt to get a head start on the bicentennial year of, of uh, 1976, knowing that the entire country was going to be celebrating the bicentennial in every commercial sense possible. He had no interest in doing that, so he jumped ahead and in 1975 celebrated the Bicentennial of Paul Revere's ride with the Liberty Ale, and as we all know, but Paul Revere is famous in history for announcing the uh, pending arrival of the British, and Fritz, in his um, wickedly sinister, funny way, thought it would be precious to celebrate uh, Paul Revere's ride with the quintessential British pale ale, and that's our, our version of it, the California version. Uh, first dry hop pale ale made in the United States of modern times, meaning since Prohibition, and it's probably really the first ever in the history of the United States. We just say since in modern times because that's the record keeping's good. Maybe somebody did it before then. We just don't have the records for it. It was also the first beer to use Cascade hops. And um, now if you know anything about craft beer, you recognize that uh, uh, I'd say that uh, pretty much every craft brewery has done a pale ale using um, the Cascade hops. It's probably the most copied beer in the world today. And um, hopefully you can see why. It's a delicious beer and a fantastic hop, and it makes an interesting brew. So that's the uh, Liberty Ale. And um, then I think we're just going to do a quick sample, and then we're going to move on and try the porter. By the way, let me introduce you. Bill Lodge is helping me out. He looks more like the brewery guy than I do, I think. Bill is a longtime friend of mine from Colorado. He's also one of our distributors in Colorado, and, and he is the quintessential beer geek, and he came out to savor just to sample and enjoy all the various beers and hang out with the brewers and a lot of the people that he does business with. I want to thank Bill for helping me, and, and my wife, Laura, here, who has to suffer through me talking not all day, but all through the night now is here helping out too so thanks guys so if there's any questions please I mean a salon is supposed to be a give and take and dear God I hope you didn't come up here to listen to me talk for 30 minutes nonstop because you're going to be sadly disappointed um, so please feel free to jump in and then we'll just going to kind of keep moving on and, and I'll just say what we're going to do is try the beers that went into it we didn't bring the Bach had to draw the line somewhere, so I left the Bach out of it. Frankly, I don't, I'm not really excited about our Bach. It's a good Bach. It's a great beer, but 
it, it doesn't thrill me anyways, and it's very similar to the porter, so I thought I'd skip that. We're going to do the Liberty, the porter, our foghorn, which is a barley wine style, very sweet, very rich, very high in alcohol. Then we'll do the barrel ale, and then we'll end up with a little sample of the whiskey that came from the barrels that this beer did. And then I just thought, what the hell, in for a penny, in for a pound. I brought some of the gin that we make, and I have a little gin 50-milliliter bottle for each of you to take home with you because no one likes to drink warm gin, I hope. No one's interested in drinking warm gin. <laughs> um, but Brad Latham of the Brewers Association told me, make sure you put it in your pocket because um, you're not supposed to take anything home unless you have a card that he autographed or signed or something to get out the door. So just put the gin mini in your pocket when you walk out tonight. Yes? <laughs> Two questions. One, uh, now that you're going to be running the brewery rather than Fritz, any changes that you can tell us you're planning to make, and two, since you're one of the few breweries that has both a brewery and a distilling license, any consideration to making a beer schnapps? Um, beer schnapps, no, we've never thought of that. Uh, I know a couple other people have, and it was not... Um, I wouldn't say that there was never any, any consideration to it. I mean, I think we've considered, Fritz has considered so many different things and ruled them out. You really kind of have to draw the line someplace. Um, and he has a, a, a way of stating things that is pretty interesting, that we do a lot of interesting things that uh, never see the light of day. And he describes it as it may be a great idea, but it's not a good idea. So we're constantly doing lots of experiments and, and um, uh, having a lot of fun, kind of mad scientist is the way I would describe Fritz. It's a, it's a great place to work. It's fun along those lines that we do get to do a lot of things. But if we don't think it's a killer project, it will never see the light of day. And, uh, and there are quite a few things that never do see the light of day from us. As far as any differences in the brewery and distillery, yeah, there are going to be some differences. Um, the people that are buying it, I'm not the person who's buying it. The people that are buying it are two gentlemen, Tony Folio and Keith Greger. And they were the number one and number two guys at Sky Vodka. They had built Sky Vodka up to a very large company and um, ended up selling it to Campari, the big international Italian-based conglomerate. They, they did not want to sell it. They tried desperately to talk the owner out of selling it. Um, unfortunately, Campari wrote him a check for $500 million, and he told him to go jump in a lake and took the check. Um, so now they're buying the brewery and the distillery, and, and initially their very big interest is in the distillery, obviously. That's their background is vodka and distilling, and, and um, they see that we have two world-class um, distillates here in our Old Petrero whiskey and our Unipero gin, and um, they, I think, candidly see them as being truly world-class in every sense of the word. So there's going to be a big expansion in that. We're also going to start to do some some more experimenting and some more fun projects, I think. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a renewed sense of uh, hmm, willingness to fail, maybe is a good way to put it. You know, not in a big way, but willing to try smaller projects that won't risk the company. But, you know, we're willing to fall flat on our face in a small way from time to time. So, yeah. Yes? Yeah, he's, he's, uh, let me just comment and say that um, 
we're in the pro- he's in the process of selling it. He has a contract to sell it, um, and it's just pending all the legal and regulatory stuff. And as Paul Gatson knows very well, there is an inordinate amount of legal and regulatory uh, work that comes with um, any brewery or distillery or anybody Bill knows in the alcohol beverage business. We're controlled by every elected official in the history of mankind (laughs) and taxed by them. So they all want their approval on the process, so it's all pending that, but we think it will probably come in August. Um, Fritz is going to stay on as Chairman Emeritus, and uh, he's going to continue in some of his leadership roles that he's got, uh, but he still has a vineyard. He's owned a vineyard as long as he's owned the brewery and grows grapes and makes a little bit of wine from his his own grapes. So he's... uh, not really entering retirement per se, it's just kind of focusing more of his attention on the vineyard. So, where are we? We have the Liberty and we have the Porter now. So, again, let me talk a little bit about the Porter. The Porter, Fritz says, there were no real Porters being made in the world in 1974 when he first brewed Anchor Porter. He said not even England had real Porters. They had beers that were darker in color, and they called them Porters, but they tended to be just colored. And um, in a candid moment, which he did recently, one of the very rare times he's admitted it, when he bought the brewery in 1965, Anchor actually did have a Porter. And it was Anchor Steam that just had a little bit of caramel coloring to it. And he said that was typical of the world at that time. And um, he thought, well, that's fun. We've got a porter. And he said for the first few years, he came in and poured the caramel coloring into the Anchor Steam and sold the porter. And then he finally realized that it just wasn't really what he wanted to do, so he stopped doing it. And um, he started traveling quite a bit through Europe, and particularly in England and Germany, and studying Old World Brewing. And when he discovered that not even the English were brewing porters, he decided that he was going to make a faithful, good, real porter, and that was ours, and it was first brewed in 1974. Do do they edit out the pauses, or is this live on the beer radio? It's not live. They will edit it, so if you curse, they'll probably cut that out. Oh, good. All right, well, I'll be careful about that, so, yeah. For the bar- yeah, for the barrel ale, I think it was, we had six barrels. And if I remember correctly, we had two barrels of porter, two barrels of Liberty Ale, um, one barrel of Foghorn, and one of the Bach. Does that make sense? Was that right? I think that was something like that. So, You know, one of the interesting things that we discovered... Um, when we emptied the barrels, they were pretty much, you know, you empty the whiskey out of the barrel, and it's pretty much almost, you want all the whiskey you can, so you empty it upside down, you pump it out, and then you empty it and everything. And if you look in there with a flashlight, you see there's just a little bit of liquid sitting at the bottom of the barrel. You just can't quite get it all because it just leaches out. But the Scots have this saying. They talk about the angel's share when they're making Scotch whiskey because they age, you know, Scotch whiskey is almost pre- exclusively aged and used bourbon barrels. So every year Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and Maker's Mark and all these guys empty their barrels to bottle their, their bourbon, they sell them all to the Scot- Scottish um, distillers. And then the Scotch age their whiskey in these used bourbon barrels. And as we've discovered, a used barrel takes a long time to make whatever's in it interesting. And so the Scotch may age their whiskeys, you know, I mean, 20-year-old Scotch whiskeys typical, common. 
You know, 15-year-olds, not really that old. You know, 18, 20-year-olds, kind of the rage. Um, and so what they, there's a loss of whiskey that they say is evaporation, upwards of 20 or 30 percent over that time period or more. They call that the angel share, the part that evaporates up into the heaven. But what we discovered is it's not all evaporating up into the heaven. After the six months that the, bear was, the beer was in the barrel, we pulled it out, we measured the alcohol, calculated what the alcohol would be with the blend of all the beers that were in there. Then we looked at what the alcohol really was. It was two points above it. And we were dumbfounded, so we went back and we thought, well, we just got the numbers wrong. Did it all over again, two points above it. We realized what had taken place. The beer had leached whiskey out of the barrel. There was that much whiskey left in the barrel that had leached out into the beer. So it was very interesting, very uh, quite a learning experience. So, so I, I guess the the, the 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 gist of that is that you are now drinking the Angel Share, <laughs> or soon will be. Yeah, so we um, it, technically uh, the beer was uh, spirit. We paid spirit tax. Now the tax on spirits is much higher than beer. Yes. Uh, how bigger? How big are the bourbon barrels used? They're a standard bourbon barrel, and I'm afraid you're going to ask that. Anybody know what a standard fifty-three gallon? Anybody? No one. I think it's a little less than that. Do you know, Bill? What's that? Quick, who's got their iPhone handy? <laughs> I do. But then there'll be that awkward pause again, so, yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. There you go. How did you guys get involved with Anchor Brewing? You mean us? Yeah. Well, um, nepotism. <laughs> if you know what the what the the true literal meaning of nepotism is it's not father, son, it's uncle, nephew, and I am Fritz Maytag's nephew. Nepotism means nephew. <laughs> it is. It's Latin for nephew. So nepotism, candidly speaking. I actually, I went to school in Washington, D.C. I lived there for seven years and have a degree in political science from GW and worked on Capitol Hill, worked at the White House and did a bunch of other stuff. So Studied graduate school at Brickskeller. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no. So, John, do you want to tell us about the old Foghorn? Are we at the Foghorn now? Yeah, the Foghorn again. First brewed, 1975. Um, first time barley wine's been brewed in the uh, United States in modern times. First of its kind. Classic, true Foghorn. And again, interesting story of how Fritz decided to do it. Again, traveling through England, the UK, looking and studying uh, British brewing and, and drinking uh, tradition. And, you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s, the only people that were drinking barley wine style beers in England were little old ladies. And they were kind of snickered at and made fun of for drinking the, these uh, barley wines as, uh, you know, the, it was a little old ladies' drink. And Fritz. When he discovered that, he seized on it. He realized he was onto something. He couldn't wait. I think he cut his trip to England short to run back to the brewery and start brewing barley wine. He realized that it, 
you know, if it was so out of fashion that they were making fun of little old ladies drinking it, that it was something that the United States would probably embrace wholeheartedly. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 we're still waiting for the United States to embrace barley wine-style beers wholeheartedly. Our barley wine varies because of the super high nature of the sugar involved. Um, it varies between 8 and 10% alcohol, so we actually have a, a range of labels that we produce depending. We could, of course, adjust it in the brew house and brew it to a specific, but in a very uh, faithful brewing manner, Fritz says, no, we're just going to go with what the, the uh, sugars are with the original gravity, and that's going to be what the alcohol that we end up with, and we'll just adjust our labels and not the brew. So, Yes? Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the small beer was just about the same time. The small beer, you know, basically what happens to get the foghorn as rich and sweet as it is, we, we concentrate the first runnings of two brews. So it's, the, it's basically twice the amount of sugar that go into the brew kettle. And as we all know, what happens in the brew kettle is that, or in the brew house, is we take barley, which is full of starch, and bar, you know, barley, the, the kernel, it's a seed, and the seed is, any seed pretty much is exactly like an egg yolk, or an egg, it's a shell. It has an embryo and a yolk sac, a seed does. The yolk sac is a huge energy reservoir that the embryo will draw on as it's growing. And for a seed, it needs a huge energy reservoir until it can grow up, break ground, drop its leaves, and produce chlorophyll through photosynthesis. So it's a huge starch reserve. What we're doing in the brew house is simply converting that starch into simple sugars by cooking it in the brew house. It's about a five, six-hour process, and once we've converted the starch into sugar and then boiled off some of the proteins and the other things that we don't want in the finished beer, we then send it into a fermenter. We cool it down, put it in a fermenter, we add yeast. The reason we want simple sugar is because yeast can consume simple sugar. It can't consume starch, or it, does so not, it doesn't do so very well. It loves sugar. When it consumes it, it produces two byproducts, alcohol and CO2. So what we're doing to produce the foghorn is concentrating the sugars, and so there's a bunch of extra sugar. There's so much sugar that there's a, the residual sweetness in the foghorn uh, because the yeast can't consume it all in the fermenter. Um, but because we're only using the first running, the first quick, first mass of concentrated sugar from the brew house, there's a second running, which is a little thinner, but still has quite a bit of sugar. And so we, we ferment that, we make beer out of that, and again, it's a traditional British beer called small beer. It's small in, smaller in flavor, smaller in alcohol, smaller in color even, and we just call ours Anchor Small Beer. And I think traditionally, I was just talking to some brewers about this last week and some pretty knowledgeable beer historian type people. You know, the Foghorn would have, you know, as uh, the, the stratification of British society between the haves and the royals and the wealthy and the workers, you know, the, the, the haves would have been drinking the, the barley wine style and the workers would have been drinking the small beer. But also the small beer being much lower in alcohol, it's a beer that the workers could drink with their lunch and not get drunk or intoxicated and, and still come back and work. So, and that's what ours is. Ours is about 3.8% alcohol, the small beer is. Uh, with, with, with all your English brewing tradition, do you now or have you ever used any English yeast? 
Or could you tell us more about what kind of yeast you guys use? No, we, you know, we've been using the same yeast uh, since we moved into our current brewery in 1979. We recycle the yeast in a sense. You know, we, we, we clean it, wash it. Um, you know, and every time a, you're fermenting beer, you're creating, you know, upwards of, say, eight, nine, ten times the amount of yeast that you began with. So we'll collect that, and we've just been recycling it for the same time. And another moment of extreme candor, Fritz has told me that in the past, you know, when he first started, they didn't um, maintain their own yeast. They didn't, technically, they weren't able to. You have to keep it, you know, clean and cold and sterile and and his brewery, as he says, was medieval back in uh, 1965. So he went around to the other breweries. There was a lot of lo- other local brewers, breweries in the Bay Area, and he would go around when he needed yeast and borrow from them. So he would kind of cycle through them. So he never went to one brewery twice in a row. He would wait and come back to that one a few months later. And he said a few times they would turn them away, and so he actually went to a couple of the bakers. He also told another story. I mean, you know, Paul, you know, knows this well. But late 1960s was a, a different world for craft beer, and, and I mean, ten years, five years ago was a different world than it is now. But imagine 1960s, late 60s. You know, the world had never heard of craft brewing, um, dark beers, interesting beers, beers with flavor had long since gone out of style, and it was the you know the light pilsners that were all the rage, um, or light lagers. And um, Fritz was having a hard time trying to convince the world to drink a beer with flavor and color and character and, and trying to convince the world that it mattered that it was being brewed in a very faithful manner, that he was using all malt, no adjuncts, whole hops, all done by hand, uh, very faithful, very traditional, and he was really desperate to, to get some attention. And at the time, he and his family lived in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, so he would drive home at night in his little convertible car. And back then, they would brew maybe, if they were lucky, once every couple of weeks. And, um, you know, it was very small production. And, and the hops used to come in a wax brick. And he had this idea one night driving home and put the roof down on the convertible and he cut the wax brick of hops, op- left it open sitting on the seat next to him and drove up and down hate with that brick there, hoping that the police would arrest him. And that the next day there would be splashed on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, local brewer falsely arrested, marijuana scare. He said about five trips up and down hate, it finally dawned on him, you know, it was 1968, 69, he said he couldn't have been arrested for killing somebody. He just went home. So, so uh, going back to, you know, the period of 1965 to 1976, when Anchor was the only craft brewer in the United States. Um, how does that, you know, that almost burden of responsibility of being the original craft brewer impact the brewery's uh, uh, beers, marketing activities? Is it limiting? Well, I think... Um Gosh, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if this wasn't being recorded, but since Fritz is in contract to sell the brewery, I think I'll say candidly. It kind of comes back to what I said, that, you know, there's, there's in, in the future there'll be um, more of a willingness to fall on our face, as long as we don't ruin the company. You know, a renewed sense of risk-taking, because everything he did, I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine now, but these were all huge risks at the time. You know, they were just untried, never done before, 
not knowing whether the world would have any interest in it or just mock him as this goofball guy out in San Francisco that inherited a bunch of money and just a playboy and off doing weird things. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, and I think he also has a sense now. People say, oh, you got to try this or you got to do that or you got to do something interesting. He's, you know, his attitude is he's been innovating and, and uh, revolutionizing the beer world for 40-plus years now. So, yeah, good question. But there's also, um, there's so much going on in the craft beer world, and some of it's goofy and some of it's weird and some of it's great ideas that aren't good ideas, but, boy, there's some really brilliant ideas, and there's such great, interesting things taking place right now, and there's such a spirit of innovation, and I think willingness by a lot of the people in the in the um, Industry to fall flat on their face, to risk doing some weird stuff. And some of them are falling flat on their face, but some of them are doing really great stuff and really intriguing stuff. And um, there's a, a lot of new blood, and it's a fun time to be in the craft beer business. I, I say that this is, this is the height of the craft beer business in the United States. It, it's just, it, it's not going to get much better than this. I don't think Paul wants to hear it. I know Paul thinks that we've got a lot of room for growth. Whoops. I think, yeah, there is a lot of room for growth. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that's going to be a good thing for our industry. So I think that these are the salad days in the craft beer business. <laughs> so are we ready to try the barrel ale? We're, we're drinking it? That's what I just spilled? I thought that smelled pretty good. <laughs> it smells great. So the, the, the barrel-aged beer, how does it taste? Is it pretty good? It wasn't pasteurized. It wasn't filtered. Um, you notice it's obviously there's not a lot of carbonation in it. We didn't charge the carbonation. Um, I think uh, if, we, if and when we do it again, I would actually put a little bit more carbonation, and I think it would add a little bit more of a mouthfeel to it. But it's a pretty interesting project. Hopefully it's still clean. No, this was uh, uh, last year. February of '09, I think. Yeah, February of '09. So it was released then. It's just been sitting in our uh, refrigerator since then. But yeah, being unpasteurized, you know, fortunately it's pretty good alcohol. It's pretty high in alcohol. I think it's I forgot what it is eight eight percent alcohol, nine percent alcohol, something like that. But also the barrels that it had been aged in. Someone had said, somebody in the brewery said, oh, you know, you're going to spend six months in those barrels, you know, it's going to go bad, you know, you're going to get sour beer. And we're like, it was 140 proof, you know, whiskey that went into that barrel. I don't think that anything's going to grow in there. It's, you know, I think we're okay. It wasn't a problem. So that's definitely the case. I think it's fine. It's held up pretty well. When did uh, Anchor start uh, putting vintages on some certain beers? You know, we we haven't. We've got a huge library of Christmas ale that we've been sitting on, and it wasn't ever that um, we were trying to build a library of vintage Christmas ale. It was just whatever was left over at the end of the year that we didn't sell. We also have a little bit of Foghorn, and I've been trying to sell a little bit of it, Bill. I'd love it. You can help me out here. We've got we've we've got Christmas sale going back about 20 years now, and it's it gets pretty oxidized after about 10, 12 years, but it's still fairly interesting. And you know, our Christmas sale we change the recipe every year. It's a spice ale. It's been a spice ale for I think 18 years, something like that now, changing the recipe. 
So it's kind of fun to go back and try them and taste them and do different things. I was talking to Ken Grossman not very long ago when he and Fritz were doing a joint brew together, and Ken told me that they've got a bunch of vintage beers, and what he does is that he's been... Ours is mostly in the bottles. Um, Ken keeps kegs, and what he does is he charges $10 extra for every year of age that keg has on it. So I went back to the brewery. I said, hey... Let me tell you what Grossman just told me. <laughs> Start putting those kegs aside. We, there's some money to be had there, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. You said um, that you kept these under refrigeration, and there's a lot of big multi-flavors and alcohol in here. Do you think this would sell her well? The barrel ape? Barrel, barrel yeah, I think it will sell her okay. But, it, you know, not pasteurized and not filtered. Eventually, it's who knows what actually might be in there. Because we did the hand bottling machine, you know, it wasn't... I mean, we, we tried to sterilize it, but, you know, there's going to be some bacteria in there. I mean, I, honestly, I think I get a little hint. I don't know of anybody else. I, there's probably a little hint of something in there now. It's, it's real clean. It tastes pretty good. But I think there might be a little bit of souring, which, you know, let's get Vinny in here. You know? We'll try some sour beer, too. Yeah, that's not all bad either. Yeah. Uh, you said something about... Uh you think there's plenty of room still for growth in the industry, but not that that's necessarily a good thing. Could you talk some more about that? Well, look at Sam Adams. You know, I mean, whatever you'd say about Sam Boston Beer Company, they're approaching two million barrels. <sighs> I mean, <laughs> they got a hell of a lot more in common with uh, the guys in St. Louis than they do with any of us in California. You know, I just I don't know. I just uh, bigger isn't necessarily going to be better. Uh, problem is, you just the bigger you get, the more business-like you have to be. You know, you just it just forces you to be more of a businessman and less of a brewer or something. There are still people that are doing a great job. Ken Grossman is the very example of how to be a large brewery and a great brewer and an innovator and uh, doing some very interesting things and still being creative and stuff like that. But I don't know. What are your, some of your favorite beers from other breweries around the country? Um, well, I just saw my friend uh, Ron Lindenbush from Lagunitas down there, and I love what Lagunitas is doing. Their brown sugar is just killer. Um, I love their beer. They, they do a great job. They're just up the road from us. They're great people, um, some pretty interesting characters. I like the beers that they brew. I love the stuff that um, Sierra Nevada does. Um, I'm not a huge fan of sour beer, but anything that Vinny Salerzo does at Russian River, I'm, I'm all for it. I think Vinny's one of the greatest guys, not just in the beer business, but on the planet. I, I love Vinny and Natalie. I think they're great people. I love their beers. Um, so, yeah, the East Coast people, they got a lot to learn about brewing, but they're copying everything we do out in the West Coast, so they're coming along. You can quote me on that, Jay. I, I will. <laughs> Uh, okay, I, so I think we're going to try the whiskey now. So if I can, I'll just come back to the whiskey. We'll wrap up, and I'll, we'll, we'll move along. Um, so it's 100% malted rye. And again, uh, Fritz had, had a very long-time interest in distilling. It's a natural extension of brewing. You know, when you, basically when you're making whiskey, you're making beer and then distilling beer. Uh, at least that's what they do, and you know the bourbon guys make beer. Scotch guys, or the Scotch guys make beer. The bourbon guys, we tend to in America, we tend to uh, distill the whole mash bill, including the grain. 
but the Scots make beer and distill it. So Fritz had wanted to do distilling for a long time, wasn't really sure how or what or anything like that. It had always been kind of on the back burner. But then he discovered that George Washington had been a distiller, and that he had made rye whiskey at Mount Vernon, and that when he started reading about George Washington's distilling operation, learned more about it, and discovered that it was probably the most successful uh, commercial enterprise that George Washington had done in his life was his distilling project, where the last year of his life he sold something like almost 11,000 gallons of rye whiskey that he made all at Mount Vernon. So Fritz seized on that and decided... Rye whiskey, again, it was so out of fashion, it just couldn't help but be a success. There were really no rye whiskeys in the world other than, you know, Old Overholt, and that was usually, um, you know, if you were lucky, a bar might have a bottle of Old Overholt rye whiskey back in the back or under the shelf or someplace. So what we do is, um, at Copper Pot Still, it's all done by hand. It's very small, very small Copper Pot Stills. Our total production is so small that we won't even tell you how much whiskey we sold last year. It's it, it's tiny, a tiny fraction of whiskey. It's very, very small, but it's a fun project. And um, we make three styles of rye whiskey. They're all the same spirit out of the still, 100% malted rye, pot distilled, but then we use three different barrels. And so what we're trying tonight is our straight rye whiskey. So it's a blend of, I believe, four, eight, and 10-year-old whiskey that was aged in um, new charred oak barrels. Then we also have what we call our 18th century style whiskey, which is Fritz's attempt to be much more similar to what George Washington made at Mount Vernon. Because when Washington made and sold whiskey, it wasn't aged. It was just sold to be drunk right then. It was transported in oak barrels, but it wasn't transported in charred oak barrels. It was probably toasted oak barrels or a used sherry cask or something like that. The barrel wasn't really there to add any character to the whiskey. It was just to transport it around. Um, and usually what happened, it, Washington, half the whiskey George Washington made at Mount Vernon, he sold at Mount Vernon. And so um, they, people just came, and he put out a notice, and come get your whiskey while it lasts, and they would come and just buy it and buy a growler or whatever of it there at the brewery. So our 18th century style is aged in a toasted oak barrel, so it's more similar to a wine barrel. It's, it, you know, by law, all bourbon is aged in chard. The 18th century is different because it's aged in a toasted oak barrel. Then the third style we have is um, uh, aged in used bourbon barrels. So it's, again, similar to what the Scotch guys do. And we uh, put those barrels away when we first made the whiskey, and so we're just down to the last, I think we have five barrels remaining. We bottled one barrel of that this year, and that's called our Hotelings whiskey. And we first bottled it at... 11 years of age, I think it was, um, in 2006, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake. And if you know anything about the earthquake in San Francisco, you know that it wasn't the earthquake that really destroyed the city. It was the fire that came in afterwards and swept through and destroyed the city. Um, one of the buildings that did not burn was the Hotelings Whiskey Warehouse, which was downtown on the waterfront. The story was that some volunteers ran a fire hose a mile and a half long and protected the whiskey. <laughs> as the rest of the city and the churches around it burned down. So a, uh, there was a, a local wit and writer who heard that story and wrote a little ditty called, If It's True That God Spanked the City for Being Overly Frisky, Why Did He Burn His Churches Down and so Save Hotelings Whiskey? So our Hotelings Whiskey is our ode to San Francisco and its survival. So it's a great project. 
Yes. Well, we make two styles of gin, and, and that's our London Dry is what I brought tonight, our Unipero gin. And then we make a Geneva-style gin, and Geneva is the original gin. And what Geneva is is basically whiskey with the botanicals that go into gin. And instead of aging in a barrel, it's just they put the botanicals in it and sell it. So it's a really weird and strange project. And we have a Geneva gin that's a really strange and weird project. Yeah. In relation to something you'd said earlier about rye being very unpopular in the past, it seems to be quite the contrary now. It's kind of experiencing a renaissance such that it seems like a lot of suppliers are running out. Uh, Have you guys experienced anything to that effect? Yeah, we're out. Yeah, everyone seems to be. I work in the whiskey industry, and I can't get any rye to sell. What do you do? I, I work for a distributor that sells our own brand of rye, which we haven't been able to purchase for about two years now for that very reason. They don't yeah. have any to sell. Um, so, yeah, you know, I if you could speak to that. Yeah, there's a very interesting phenomenon that's taking place in the distilling business, craft distilling. It's the same thing that happened, that, what, now t- two times in the craft brewing business where there's been huge explosions of people rushing into it. The first one in their early 80s, and then, you know, and then it kind of teetered off, and then it came back, you know, I think maybe we're, Trailing. I don't know where we are, what you'd think, Paul, but what, there's something like 1,400 small brewers, 1,500 small brewers in the United States now? Yeah, it's uh, close to uh, 1,585 about right now, and yeah. that's up 100 from uh, like four months ago. Oh, so wow. It's just rocketing right now. Wow. A lot uh, of nano breweries starting up. Well, that's, and that's what's taking place in the distilling business. I, I was at a small distillers conference in Louisville about a month and a half ago and there were 300 people there and there are, uh, it's a, a land rush of people rushing into small distilling and there's small distillers popping up everywhere. It's pretty interesting because they're all making gin and rye whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, you know, we, we get our rye from the same uh, malt companies that we get our barley for the beer. So that's, that's not a problem for us. I kind of heard a story that when uh, Fritz kind of started with the uh, whiskey plan, that uh, when he started purchasing rye, some of the other breweries started buying rye thinking that he's going to make a rye beer. Uh, do you have some more <laughs> history on that uh, story at all? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I've never tasted a good rye beer. I'm sorry to anybody that makes rye beer. It's terrible. <laughs> I'll stick up for rye beers. I love that crispness, that drying effect. Okay. I mean, to, I'll, yeah. I, you know, I haven't tried any in a long time, so Paul's right. I mean, there's some good, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. We, we had a kind of a false company that was buying the rye. Fritz was worried that people would get, you know, that would find out that he was going to make rye whiskey and, you know, and someone beat him to the punch or something. But it was funny now. And when he found out that people beat him to the punch but they were making rye beer, it was good for a chuckle. It still is 20 years later. Yes, sir. How much of your... Uh, what percentage of business is now in distilled spirits versus the beer? I'm sorry, say that again? What percentage of your business is in the distilled spirits ours? versus the beer? Oh, it's uh, tiny. What? The brewery? Yeah, that's, brewery? The, yeah the brewery is, pays the bills. The, the distilling is a very small operation. We sold, 
about 5,000 cases of gin last year, and that's a six-bottle case. So, and that's probably about 10 states and a few countries internationally. So, very tiny. And the, the whiskey is so a fraction. The whiskey is a 10% or maybe not even that much? No, not even that. Tiny. Yeah. So it's about 7 o'clock, and if you don't have any other questions, I think, I, I don't know, Paul about ready to move I, on. Yeah, I've got one uh, more question. Is uh, I know you started talking a little bit about the humming ale that is down there on the floor. I've never run into that before. Um, do you want to tell a little more about the style? And yeah, that was a fun project because I was with our assistant brewmaster in England, and we were visiting a bunch of small brewers. I mean, kind of honestly doing what Fritz had done 40 years earlier, 35 years earlier. We were visiting a bunch of small English breweries, some brewers that had been recommended to us as people that were doing interesting things. And, I mean, they weren't all small. I mean, we J.W. Lee's and, um, you know, some of the larger breweries, but still, you know, traditional cask gales and stuff like that. It was a great trip. We spent two weeks driving throughout UK, crisscrossed the country back and forth a couple times, east and west, north and south, all over, visited about 15 different breweries. Somebody told us of a little brewery way up north of Manchester, um, a mom and pop that were brewing in basically an old Quonset hut. And so we called and they said, come on by. And they were showing us some of the beers that they were doing. And they were making a, 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 a kind of a very mild pale ale with the, this hop called Nelson Sauvan. And Nelson Sauvan is a hop that uh, gets its name Sauvan, is a variation of Sauvignon. It's a very fruity and a grape-like quality. It's grown in New Zealand by the hop co-op in Nelson, New Zealand. And so we wanted to put it to use, but we weren't sure what to do with it. And um, called the co-op in, in New Zealand and found that they had some that they could sell us. And so we ordered some and kind of hemmed and hawed. And finally decided that maybe what we would do is a a beer with a very similar malt program to the Liberty Ale that used the Nelson Sauvin, and that's what that is, the Nelson Sauvin. Is, it's basically the same malt, pro, malt profile of the Liberty Ale. It's 100% Nelson Sauvin. So hopefully you'll stop by the table. We're at number four downstairs, I think. Try the Nelson Sauvin. Hopefully you liked the beers tonight and thought the barrel ale was pretty interesting. Uh, and... Um, you're getting your gin. Everybody get a gin. Again, no one drinks dry, uh, warm gin. Don't drink it tonight. Take it home and put it on ice. Yeah. The um, so uh, I'll let security know that uh, the gin is okay to leave the hall. But in case the word doesn't get around, just keep it in your pocket as you go out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll let them know downstairs that uh, this was a gift uh, from John to each of you. And if you ever any of you are coming to San Francisco, please call me. I'd love to show you around the brewery. Um, I, I think our, our greatest uh, asset is our brewery. We have a spectacular brewery. It's right in San Francisco. It's very traditional, an all-copper uh, brew house, and uh, it's a lovely little facility. I think you'd be surprised at how small it is, and I'd even be willing to show you the distillery, which is we don't show around, but uh, I'd love to show it off. So please call me if you're coming and just tell me that you suffered through our, our recorded talk on Craft Beer Radio with Paul Gatza at Saver. So. <laughs> You've been there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, good. So thank you all for coming out. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, All right, great job, John. Really appreciate it. That was uh, delicious beers. And uh, for downstairs, uh, some brewers may be pouring already, even though we're a little early. 
and also uh, you'll, if you haven't gotten your glass or your spork, also called a foon, um, that's what you'll use for tasting a lot of things down there. And uh, we're trying to make this a zero waste uh, project, so um, you know that's uh, going to be comp- the uh, sporks are compostable. The bottles will all be recycled, and uh, so try not to create any waste tonight if you can. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to Craft Beer Radio's 2010 coverage of Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. To learn more about Savor, please go to savorcraftbeer.com. To listen to more salons, interviews, and other content from Craft Beer Radio, please go to craftbeerradio.com. You can contact us on Twitter at at craftbeerradio or via email at beer at craftbeerradio.com.